opening reading for today will be in Exodus chapter 25. I want to invite you a few different ways you can read along in the passage. We'll have them on the screens. You can look to your notes for different passages that we'll hit on today. But also, if you don't own a Bible, we should have a Bible in the row there. Grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, keep that. That's our gift to you. Uh, it's much better in your hands being read throughout the week than sitting in the back of these seats uh, collecting dust. So take one of those Bibles uh, if you wish. Also, with this passage, uh, we're going to be focusing on the first section of chapter 25. We're not really going to get into all the details of the remaining chapters, except we'll skip to chapter 31. The reason why is there's a lot of detail in these chapters about the building of the tabernacle. We're focusing on uh, the building uh, or the materials used to build the tabernacle and all the furnishings that will go in there. This is actually, I've got to kind of hold myself back a little bit because I'm a little bit of a nerd and a geek. The tabernacle the, the storyline of the tabernacle throughout Scripture is absolutely fascinating. And so I may get off on some little tangents in there. Just bear with me this morning because this is one of my favorite subjects and themes to outline throughout Scripture is seeing the way that God is, desires to dwell and be present with his people, which we'll see this morning in this passage about the tabernacle. So we'll start off kind of looking at uh, verses 1 to 9. That'll be our opening reading. And then I'm going to summarize the rest of the chapters just quickly. And I want to invite you this week as you go out and you're studying on your own, read the the chapters that we have outlined here uh, for you. So let's do our reading. Uh, Exodus 25, 1 to 9. God's word says this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast feasts, and let them make me a sanctuary. Let me repeat that again. Verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, hear this, that I may dwell in their midst. Verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Last week, we left off with the giving of the law to Moses, the Israelites in that passage are at Mount Sinai, and if you'll recall, uh, they had great fear and trembling as the glory of God came down on that mountain. And so fear and trembling, we're in this kind of same context here, fear and trembling has filled the people of God as they, awestruck by the power and might of God's glory resting on Mount Sinai, are confronted with the transcendence, what is the transcendence of God, the kind of otherworldliness, the glory of Yahweh, the triune God. This God will now take his place among his people, uh, not to confine God, because we can never confine God to a box. We know that his dwelling presence isn't confined to one place. His word tells us that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere. And in his grand transcendence, his, his omnipresence, as we know, he will now be near to his people. His word says that he may have a place to dwell with them. His presence dwelling with them. And I want to make this point to you this morning. This is the presence of God dwelling with us. This is the longing of every human heart, whether we admit it or not, that we dwell in the presence of 
the Lord. Pastor Tim, Tim Chester calls this the longing that we have for home. That dissatisfaction that we have, even apart from Christ, that dissatisfaction that we have with the world around us and the way things are going, the dissatisfaction we have with the condition of our heart, because if we're honest, something just isn't quite right. There's a hole there that we need to fill, and oftentimes we fill that hole with things of the world, what we would call idols, things that we put in the place of God to, to fill this, this yearning that we have for home to be in the presence of the Lord. Apart from Jesus, we have this aching, this longing, this yearning, this peace missing. It's the curse of sin. It's the banishment from the Garden of Eden. We long for home. We long for union with our Creator. Genesis chapter 3 details the reason for the distance between God and humanity. The reason for the longing that exists deep down within. You see, God had given Adam and Eve all that they needed. He commissioned them to tend, that is to work the garden and to be fruitful and multiply. That was his command. But Adam did not protect his garden because a serpent entered it, a deceptive serpent, as we know is Satan, and And this serpent deceived his wife, Eve, in eating from the tree that God commanded them to not eat from. Adam also partook of the fruit, and in an instant, they realized this, that they were naked, that they were exposed. And because of their awareness of their nakedness, they hid from God. It says that God sought them out, and they hid from their Creator. Because of their sin, they were banished from the garden. They were sent out. Genesis 3.24 tells us this. He drove out the man and at the east. Everybody say east with me. They went out east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim. Everybody say cherubim with me. You guys get an A+. So he has a cherubim guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword that turned away, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so humanity has been now separated from God. And so we, because of the sin that is within us, we call it original sin, we are all born into sin. We long for home. We long for Eden. We long for the presence of God to dwell with us. This brings us to our main point for this morning. Our main idea is this. Eden recreated the dwelling place of God is with his people. Eden recreated the dwelling place of God is with his people. Verse 8 of chapter 25 says this, and let them make a sanctuary, what? That I may dwell in their midst. That's the purpose of God is bringing forth here is that he desires to dwell with his people, to be with his people. The tabernacle, as we'll learn in this passage, is massively important both to the Jews in their present context, which we're studying here in the book of Exodus, and also in greater redemptive history. If you've been following along with us, you've known in Exodus, we've looked at the the immediate teaching there for the people in historical context, and then also we've pulled out and we've seen kind of the storyline of Scripture, which points to who? Jesus Christ, right? We've seen redemptive history unfolding. The tabernacle conveys the desire for God to dwell with his people, and yet also the tabernacle represents or conveys the chasm, the space that exists between God and humanity. 
You see, because the tabernacle has three sections. It has an outer court, okay? If you have like a study Bible, you'll probably see a, an image in your Bible that has a, a picture of what we think the tabernacle area looks like. And there'll be an outer court, which would have been outside. The tabernacle was a tent-like structure, okay? And the outer court was where the, the greater Israelite population, they could enter into that area, okay? And within the, the outer court, it contained two items. It contained a, a bronze altar for burnt offering and a bronze basin for ceremonial washing. I want to pause here for just a second because this is also a picture of something we learned about last week. When Israel came to Mount Sinai, we saw three different sections that people could come to. The the, the outer layer was where the people could congregate at, at the foot of the mountain, and yet the, the priest could go a little bit further up the mountain, and then who could go up to the top in the presence of God at the top of the mountain? But Moses and also Aaron was invited. Okay, and so we see the separation. We see the greater congregation at the bottom. We see the priesthood come up a little bit further. And then what we would define as, as the high priest at the top in the, in the presence of God. And we kind of see this same picture here in the construction of the tabernacle. And so moving from the outer court now to the actual tent, the tabernacle, priests, the priesthood could enter into the tabernacle and they entered in from this direction, from the east. Okay, remember we said Eden recreated, right? So they enter into this this first room. The tabernacle had two rooms. They entered into this room from the east. And this first room is known as this, the holy place. The area contained these things, the altar of incense, the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand, if you read through these chapters, was modeled after a tree. I believe it's reminiscent of the, of the tree in the Garden of Eden. And also, a candle gives off what? Light. It's representative of the light of God. This area also contained the table for the bread of presence, I believe symbolizing Israel's communion with God. What's more intimate than a meal with somebody? To sit down at a table and, and share, to break bread together, right? We have that saying, to break bread. So this, this table represents Israel's communion with God. A veil, okay, so now the, the holy place, now we're moving a little bit further into the tabernacle. A, a veil separated Two areas, so we have the holy place, and then behind the veil is the most holy place, or what we know as the holy of holies, okay? I want to pause. This is kind of a little teaser for next week. We're not going to get into the veil so much this morning. We're going to talk about the veil next week, so you got to come back, okay? you got to come back next week to hear about the veil. The veil is really important. I love preaching on the veil and the tearing of the veil. We'll get into that later. So the veil separated the holy place, so this is where the priesthood could enter, from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. The veil also had this on it. It had embroidered on it cherubim. Does that remind us of something? Coming from the east, cherubim embroidered on the veil. What protected the Garden of Eden? Cherubim. You see the connections here? Again, they enter from the east. Adam and Eve were banished to the east, and the way to God is guarded by cherubim. The garden entrance was guarded by a cherubim. The most holy place contained this, the Ark of the Covenant. 
This furnishing held the tablets of testimony. The tablets of testimony is what we know as, know as the tablets containing the Ten Commandments, the law of God, which we learned about last week. Sitting over the tablets, so this was a, a wood box, and it was, it was covered with gold. And so the tablets were in this, and then sitting on top of the tablets in the Ark of the Covenant was what we call the mercy seat. Okay, the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat, if, if you were to read this in the original Hebrew, the original word there has a connection to covering, okay? The, the mercy seat covered what? The law of God underneath it is contained in the box. Say that word with me, covering. Good, because we're going to get to that point. So it covered the tablets, and on the mercy seat, there was two cherubim, again, outstretched over the seat. This seat would be the place of sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, okay? Only one person then could enter this area once a year, and that is the high priest. And in here, he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat for his sins and the sins of the people. He would put blood on the covering over the law, okay? I want you to remember these these words, blood covering, those types of things. Because it points to this, atonement. It points to covering. Atonement is massively important. It speaks to the covering of the sins of God's people. Again, remember the Hebrew word that we we translate mercy seat is linked to the covering of the law, which is contained in the ark. Blood is sprinkled on this covering for Israel's sin of breaking God's law. This too is also, if we rewind back and go back to the Garden of Eden, is pictured in the garden. It's first pictured in the garden. When God finds that Adam and Eve have sinned, they've broken God's commandment, they are aware, what, of their nakedness, they're exposed. God then does this. He sacrifices an innocent animal and covers them with the the skins, covering their nakedness and their shame and their exposure. Okay, so we get this, this idea of covering. You see where we're tracing covering through Scripture. Here, the mercy seat covers the law. And it's covered with the blood of a spotless, unblemished animal. Ultimately, look at this connection. Ultimately, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, went to the cross, shedding His blood, covering our sin and shame. We are also clothed or covered but not with animal skin. But rather, we are clothed with this. This is what Scripture teaches us. We're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're covered by Jesus. And so that's just a summary of the tabernacle. I want us now, looking back now to 25, 1-9, We're going to look at some application for us that we can draw out of this passage that I think is incredibly pertinent to the local church, the body of Christ, and then we're going to link everything at the end, looking at the gospel connection. How do these things point to Jesus? How does the tabernacle point to Jesus? So our first point of application, heartfelt contribution. Heartfelt contribution. Going back to 25, 1 to 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution from every man. Hear this. This, this, is the, this is the qualifying statement here. This is what qualifies someone to contribute, whose heart moves him. 
you shall receive the contribution from me. Some of you are sitting in here this morning, and maybe it's your first time with us, or you haven't been here in a while, and you're like, ah, great. I picked the Sunday that Keith's going to talk about giving, contributions. Why did I pick this Sunday to come? Why did I invite? Okay, we're going to hit on it a little bit, and then we'll move on, okay? But where Scripture speaks to these things, we're going to speak to them. We're going to preach the whole counsel of God. And the bottom line is, is that we are called to contribute to the work of God. That's what God's people are being called to here. And this contribution is not out of mere duty, okay? But from what? The movement of the heart, from God stirring within their heart to give to his purpose. This particular section highlights, if you were to read on, the giving of the materials that will be used to build the dwelling place of God, to build the tabernacle. Which, interestingly enough, if you read through, we read through these uh, different contributions that they're to bring, they're strangely familiar. Because God promised that the Israelites would have these things when they left Egypt. And so, the things that God is asking for them to contribute, He gave to them in advance of this. Let's go back to Exodus three twenty-one to 22. You can look to the screens or to your Bibles or to your notes. It says this, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for what? For silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Later on, when the Israelites flee Egypt, the Egyptians are literally throwing stuff at them as they're leaving. Stuff that is eventually called by God now to say, hey, as the Lord's stirs your heart, would you give this to be used for the tabernacle to build a dwelling place for God? Isn't that beautiful? All the items needed to build the tabernacle were given to the Israelites because of the favor of God on them. And in turn, they respond now to God because of his blessing, his material blessing to them, they then respond by contributing to his work. They are in a sense, this is, this is beautiful. God is called that God could, he could snap his fingers and the tabernacle would be built. I mean, he's the God that we just saw that parted the waters and sent the plagues. He speaks things into existence, but in his goodness, he gives us good gifts so that we may contribute them back and partner with him in his redemptive plan and purpose. And he still does that. That we can be a part of his work. They're partners. The Israelites are partners in building God's dwelling place. And this dwelling place points to the redemptive agenda of God. That he will save people through a once and for all sacrifice. And church, we too are called to participate in this way. Except we're not building the dwelling place of God, but rather we are bringing the good news of Christ to those in unbelief by advancing the kingdom of God to the nations. We're called to contribute to that because God has blessed us too. He's blessed us with ability to go and work reap the benefit and blessing of that work, and give back to the mission of the kingdom. And it's not that we have to participate. It's that we get to participate. That God would stir in our hearts also a desire, as our heart is moved by his kingdom, 
agenda. Point number two, I want you to turn to uh, chapter 31 in your Bibles. We're going to look now at a few characters. Our second point is spirit-empowered service. Spirit-empowered service. We're going to look at Bezalel and Aholiab, craftsmen who lead in carrying out the work of building that we'll find in chapter 31. And so we're going to see in this passage spirit-empowered service. You can look to the screens or to your notes or in your Bibles. Exodus 31, 1-6 says this, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled them with the Spirit of God. Did you hear that? I have filled them with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise, I love this, artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamech of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Isn't this just like God? He not only calls, but he prepares the way. He fills these guys with the Holy Spirit and sets them forth that they may carry out his work. God leaves no stone unturned. He's so good. These men have been filled by the Spirit of God in order to serve. Notice they are filled with the Spirit and that reveals the abilities that they have. Not only ability, but intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship to serve the Lord's purposes. I I truly appreciate the, the focus on the artistic gifts here. I feel like the church a little bit has lost touch with this. God loves, hear this, God loves beautiful things. God loves beautiful aesthetics. Just look at his creation. I mean, I love, I love going in the city and looking at man-made things. There's beautiful buildings in the city that we have just right near us beautiful old brick buildings and old churches and and high-rise buildings, but it pales in comparison to the creation of God. I just walk in the woods, and you see the green trees, and dancing from tree to tree, you see the scarlet cardinal, the red reflecting off the green. Walk through and, and walk through where the coneflowers are, and you see the yellow and blue finches eating and jumping about and chirping and giving a song. If you've ever visited the Grand Canyon, it pales in comparison to the Empire State Building, doesn't it? God painted... God God is so creative. Think of your favorite color. God created... God thought that out of nothing. And he created that thing. God is an artist. And I feel like artists in the body of Christ have have been neglected and have neglected their gifts. Artists, stand and be counted that you can contribute to the beauty and aesthetic of the local church to to praise God in those things. There's, There's beautiful artistry that has been imparted to people in our church and churches all around the world that they can contribute that, that we can enjoy their gift too. And we see that play out here. How about craftsmen? Okay, our, our society values so much that we go through school and then we go to college and we go into a lot of debt and we build up all this knowledge in our head, which is a, there's good things. College is a good thing. Higher education is a good thing. And yet we devalue the craftsmen among us. There are men in this church that can take a tree 
and turn it into a beautiful piece of furniture. I can't do that. I'll lose a finger if I, if I start chopping wood with a saw, take it away from me. There are men in our church that can take a piece of wood and they can make a beautiful piece of furniture. They're craftsmen. Let us not neglect those gifts that we can participate in the work of God through the things that God has given to us. Artistry and craftsmanship. We see intelligence and knowledge and putting designs together. Create and serve the Lord with your gifts. Church, we are called in this same manner. The filling of the Spirit here is is but a shadow of the giving of the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost some 1,400 years later. After the ascension of Jesus, Jesus says this to his disciples before he departs in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The following chapter in Acts chapter 2, this promise is fulfilled. When the Spirit is poured out first in the upper room and then the apostles go out, the apostle Peter goes out preaching the gospel And people hear in their own tongue and they respond. They're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is poured out on. Power comes through God's Holy Spirit. Jesus is true to His Word. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The people of God are filled. And each is, we learn this also, each person is empowered by the Spirit to serve in various capacities. We find this in this passage. Craftsmen and artists and guys who can put things together and think and, and are intelligent and knowledgeable. Each of us, church, has been empowered by God's Holy Spirit to serve in various capacities. We're filled with the Spirit of God and, are, and imparted with gifts to serve. Craftsmanship, artistry, speaking gifts, serving gifts, hospitality, teaching, discernment, and one of the gifts I think we display best is prayer. Praying for one another. And bearing each other's burdens on our knees. All of these for this, for the upbuilding of the local church. Not the division of the church, but the upbuilding and unity of the local church that people with different gifts would come together glorifying one God. Unified together. And that we use our gifts for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's a command of God. If, if you're not using your gift, you're saying, God, I know better than you. I know better than what your word says. Submit to the word of God and share your gift that we may serve one another. Lastly, we say later on in chapter 31, the idea of Sabbath rest. It's our third point. Sabbath rest. The last section of chapter 31, we're not going to read the whole thing. We'll read a few verses. 31, 12 to 13. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this, shall be, this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. 
God sets this tabernacle work before them, calls craftsmen and artisans to work, and yet God also reminds them, you need to rest. Rest. God reminds them of rest, that if that's what sets them apart as the people of God. God modeled for us, even though God doesn't need to rest. Okay, let's be clear about that. God's just fine. He can operate at full capacity all the time. But God, in his goodness and grace, modeled for us in the creation account rest because in six days he worked, he created, and on the seventh day, what? He rested. And that his people would reflect that rest. He instructed his people to remember the Sabbath as a sign and to observe Sabbath rest on the seventh day. But this rest ultimately pictures a future rest, a rest that we enjoy in the finished work of Jesus. That's why Jesus would say this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Does anybody fall into that category this morning? Labored, heavy laden. Okay, maybe you're working hard physically. Maybe you're heavy laden because you've got a lot of stuff going on in life right now and things are just weighing heavy. Maybe you're uncertain about the world around us and what's going on. And your heart's heavy about that. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Maybe you have kids that don't know Christ yet. Maybe you have family members that don't know Jesus and so your heart is heavy laden. You're laboring under the weight of that. Jesus promises you this. He says, I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. We need to rest in Jesus. That's what the Sabbath does. It gives us a picture of the rest that we have through the work of Christ. Because we, in our hearts, we want, as much as we say we don't, we want religion so bad. What do I mean by religion? We want a checklist. I want to work. That's why every other world religion does this. It says, you need to do all these things and then you're good before God. But you know what? You never measure up. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, well, I messed up there, and I messed up there, and I messed... Okay, I'm going to try again. Well, I messed up there again, I messed up there again, I messed... Christianity is the only one that God comes himself in the flesh and does the work for you and says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, all who labor, and I will give you what? Rest. It's the only one where God came and died and said, it is finished. The work is completed. Rest in me. Come to me. Jesus accomplished that on the cross. Every other system of belief pales in comparison to Christianity. And so we can look at this in in two ways. Very practically. I invite you, Christian, in our, we are such a busy society. We are such a busy culture. Physically, we need to rest. Rest in your present labor. Take time to breathe and turn things off and relax. I was watching the Olympics last night, and I was watching uh, the women's, 10,000 meter race, so a 10K. 
Okay, you guys are like, why in the world would you watch? That's the most boring race. They just run around, circle up. It's, I like it because I can watch the beginning of the race. I can take a little bit of a nap, and I wake up and catch the end, and you never missed anything, right? And so, and so at the end, there's, there's these three runners that had kind of broken away from the pack, and I mean, they're, they're setting a serious pace. They're running 400 meter times, which is one lap around that track in about 70 seconds, okay? That's fast, if you're running over six miles, that's how far they ran over six miles. And so they're running and they're all three of them are grouped together. They've broken away. And this poor girl in the front has been leading the whole way. And, and on the last lap, she kind of gestures to the one behind her like, hey, would you come up here and like take some of the weight off of me a little bit? And the lady behind her is like, no, I got to I'm going for the gold. I'm just going to chill back here and let you take all the wind. And she waits until about the 200-meter mark coming down to, on that last lap, and the, and the gal in second place breaks and just hits her stride, and the gal in third place breaks behind her, and the poor lady up in the front just kind of falls off the pace. She had burned herself out. And the two in the front just take off, and the, the lady then that's in the lead, okay, she's from the Netherlands, she enters in the last 100 meters, okay, a full sprint, and she came across the finish line, and she raised her hands, and then immediately when she raised her hands, she fell and crumbled and started calling for help. Bring me ice, bring me water. And she, she kept trying to push herself off the ground. Why? Because we can't sustain that kind of pace. We have to rest. And it was awesome to see her at work, but we can't keep going, can we? We have to pause at some point. We have to rest. And so I want to draw out that physical truth. Rest, church, rest. Okay. God is still at work even though you are sleeping. I thank God that, that he is sovereign, that he is in control so that I can preach the word and then on Sundays I can go home and lay on my couch and pass out. And, and I know I have this confidence that the word that was preached was still at work, not because of me, but because the spirit is at work. That God never rests. And this, so physically, and Sabbath rest also pictures the rest that we have in Jesus. Rest in his work. Some of you are scratching and clawing and you're trying so hard and every time you mess up, you're so disappointed. But Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest in the righteousness of Jesus. Rest in the gospel. Rest in his finished work. And so now coming full circle to the idea of God dwelling with us, right? This is the purpose of the tabernacle, that the dwelling place of God be with his people. Jesus fulfills this perfectly. It brings us to our, our gospel connection. Okay, Jesus tabernacled among us, sent his spirit to live within us, and will ultimately return again to consummate the work that he inaugurated. He began a work, and his word promises that he's coming back to bring it to completion. How do we know that, that Jesus tabernacled among us? Okay, what does that mean? It means that he came. He, he dwelt with us. John says this in chapter 1, verse 14. It says, and the word, notice it's capitalized because it's Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
He tabernacled with us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came in the flesh and lived among us, walked among us. It says this in John one twenty nine. Now here's his purpose. It says the next day he, the he in this passage is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he declares this truth. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Savior has come. The one whose shed blood would put an end to every sacrifice that was sacrificed and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat that we talked about earlier. He has come that his blood is sufficient for all who will place their faith and trust in his work. Jesus accomplished covering our sins because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That whoever believes in him, it says, he shall not perish, but shall have what? Eternal life with God. Shall forever be in his presence, dwelling with God. And Jesus also promised this. He promised a helper, an advocate, an empowering spirit that would indwell us. The one true God is three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's presence now dwells within those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus says as much in John 14, 15 to 17. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice that it's capitalized. To be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit of God dwells in you, church. God dwelt in the tabernacle, distant but present. There was a veil that separated. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. And the Spirit of God has been given in dwelling those who have faith in Jesus. From the beginning, this has been the plan. The tabernacle or temple, the dwelling place of God within his people. It's pointed to in the Garden of Eden, the first tabernacle where God walked with Adam and Eve, his presence among them. It is again pictured in the recreated Eden, the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt with his people, veiled though at that time for their protection. God's presence would dwell later on in in scriptural history in the structure of the temple. And God's presence came to us in the flesh, the perfect temple of God, Jesus Christ. And the Father and the Son have sent our helper, the Spirit to indwell us so that we now, church, we now are the temple of God. Our bodies are the temple of the living God. Isn't that amazing? And eventually, I want to leave you with this truth. Eventually, upon the return of Jesus, the indwelling presence of God will perfect all that we have marred in our sinful rebellion. We end with this picture of the future in Revelation 21. 1 to 4. This is a vision of John. John was, was a disciple of Jesus. 
He's given a vision by Jesus himself, and it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, hear these words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then he promises this. He says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. He goes on to say in verse 5, Behold, I love this, I am making all things new. Jesus is coming back to finish the work that he inaugurated, that he started. And we can hold fast to that promise because he's kept every promise up to this point. He's the only person that said that he would die and raise from the dead. And you know what? He did it. He did it. And so we have the seal of his resurrection to assure us that these promises are true. Behold, church, I am making all things new. I want to invite our band to come forward.